from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome and good morning, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball, where all of sports is discussed and dissected using statistical analysis. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business, and I'm joined in the studio this morning with my friend and colleague, Shane Jensen, also a professor in the Department of Statistics at the Wharton Business School. We are delighted to be here on a beautiful Wednesday morning. Shane? I'm delighted for a little bit of Audi in my semester. It's oh. not, not going to be very often that you're, uh, you're here with us this semester. It's so. one time and one time only. Yeah, that's very sad. It's pretty sad. I mean, sad. sad for us. Sad for you. Just for our listeners, I am spending the entire semester on sabbatical, one of those beautiful things. Oh, that it's glorious. It's, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> oh. Professors get to do. Or oh. Ordinary jobs don't have such such. Uh, oh, such we, uh, we should implement it across the board. That's time, really, yeah, that's it's time amazing. Off. So the opportunity it's the opportunity for us to uh, uh, to go somewhere. You don't actually you don't actually have to go anywhere, but to to uh, take a breather from your normal sets of responsibilities and focus on something that you haven't had the chance to uh, really focus on while you were yeah, in t- school. Yeah, take a big step back from that high intensity, high pressure world of uh, university of professors. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because over the years you accumulate administrative responsibilities. I was in. I was in on Monday. I, w- I wanted to uh, shout out to uh, Shane. He's been uh, subbing for me. We have a, research, a sports research seminar that has now grown to about fifteen students, and uh, they're actually putting on a, a huge uh, sports business, sports analytics conference here at, at uh, University of Pennsylvania in November. And uh, the group met, and uh, I was meeting students all day long. That's one of the things about being on campus is that you are constantly working with students, with with administrators, uh, designing stuff, talking to faculty members. It's really hard to get stuff done. So what my, I'm actually trying. Trying to do while I'm while I'm in Israel is write a book. So um, um, it's uh, not a research book. It won't be. A, it's not. Uh, uh, it, it's it's really going to focus on on statistics and um, it's really a lot of the but ideas. So that I've had. It is still about statistics. It's uh, not absolutely, like a, but it's, it's not no, like no. a tender coming of age novel or something <laughs> like that. Coming. No, it's not. But one of the things of being in Israel, which is complicated, and this is why I'm really happy to be joined in the studio by Shane and our listeners. If you'd like to call in, if you have any questions, you can call in at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Our producer Matt Datz is waiting for you on the phone, um, waiting to take your calls and forward your questions to us. You could also email them at businessradio at SiriusXM.com on Twitter at business radio at bizradio111. And uh, and so if you have interesting uh, observations about the sports world and would like to hear it, being in Israel means the time change is just not conducive to watching uh, or, or really really following on a live basis. Sports, uh, the seven hours, it just, just wrecks havoc on the evening games. It's when you're sleeping. So yeah, a daytime game every now and then you can catch. Um, you got to buy the NFL package if you want to watch NFL. I do have the M- MLB package. Of course. Not sur- of course. And there's nothing quite as fond as waking up in the morning at 6 o'clock and catching the end of a late game. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always entertaining. Uh, but for, but on the, in the global sense, I haven't really been able to watch that much sports. But I have been reading extensively, find, following what's happening. A lot is going on in the NFL. Yeah. And certainly a lot is going on in the... The NFL season has been very interesting so far. And so I do want to talk about, for our listeners, the plan for today is we have uh, our usual every other 
Player Week guest during the baseball season, um, former Major League pitcher coach, uh, pitching coach Rick Peterson, a close friend of the show, um, real terrific expert on baseball. He'll come in at the half hour at 8.30 or so after our break to, to, to talk baseball. And then at the top of the hour, one uh, uh, a repeat guest, Alan Nathan. Alan Nathan is a physicist, uh, retired physicist, uh, real, real famous guy, and he's really the premier expert or one of the two premier experts on the physics of baseball, and he's going to talk to us and have a conversation with us on this home run surge, um, this epic home run surge. The 2017 season saw a new record for the most home runs in a season, and there's been quite a bit of analysis, some of it most recently done by Alan Nathan, talking about why the balls seem to just be flying off the bat, and perhaps it's because you're looking at six foot eight, seven, 270 pound hitters um, who are going for the moon or going for the, for the dugout. It's one or the other, but there's much more complexity to that, and we'll be yeah, discussing that. Yeah, a couple that. weeks ago on the show, we discussed a little bit about the, the physics of baseball, and specifically whether the ball itself has changed, and I'm hoping we can Alan engage that with Alan. should give, be able to give us at yeah. least the state-of-the-art knowledge on that information, but in the NFL, a lot's been going on. Well, this is not particularly statistical. I think we should start. NFL's in a bit of a turmoil with all the uh, all the press and with, with due to Trump and uh, the Kaepernick. And, <laughs> yeah, so let's yeah. start off with a simple question. Does Kaepernick deserve to have a job based yeah, on the numbers I, alone? Yeah, I think he does. I think do. he does. I mean, I guess I can't actually back that up with a specific number right now, um, but I look around the league and I see a lot of bad quarterbacks, especially backup quarterbacks. I can't imagine that Colin Kaepernick is not a Better. top 60 quarterback in the NFL right now. Well, is there a, 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 a money factor as well? I mean, he's not free. No, he's not free, but I don't think he would be particularly expensive at this point. At this point. And, and, and uh, you know, it, it's... I mean, it could be that. I mean, there could be something. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. It could be that he refuses to play for anything but, like, you know, kind of a starter's money or something like that. I, I can't obviously know. engage that question. But I, I can engage the question that, I mean, he is definitely better than at least, I think, half the backups in this league. He right. should be on a team. What is he, he doing? He shouldn't right necessarily now? be starting. Is he not actually in at all? He's no, not he's on not a team. signed he's at not, all. He's not yeah. signed. So he's not suiting up with anyone. He's nope. just simply a free agent yeah. and available. Yeah, so. Uh, is he better than Eli Manning? <laughs> <laughs> I I've given up on trying to figure out whether Eli Manning's even good or not. He certainly doesn't look very good right now. It, it's it's he he looks horrible. And he one looks of things, horrible. One of the things about Eli Manning is is apparently um, so today actually uh, is um, I mean lots of people are talking about Eli Manning because he has two things kind of going for him. Uh, he's got a long career. And it's very unusual that yeah. that bad quarterbacks have long careers. Well, yeah. and, and and I think he's he started. Uh, this is what is his thirteenth, fourteenth yeah. season. He has two Super Bowl victories. Yeah. No, he'll probably go into the Hall you of think Fame. So? And I, I think we can all agree, if that happens, he will definitely be the most mediocre quarterback in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he he's he puts it together at random times, and I mean, you know, obviously he's had these good pretty phenomenal. One might say lucky playoff runs. He puts fear into you, I have to say. Well, I mean, of course he does. I mean, you know, the Giants appear to be the one team that's kind of had the Patriots number consistently over the last couple decades. He certainly is not putting much fear into me right now. Um, It's interesting because it's completely changed the outlook on the Giants. I mean, the Giants coming into the season, we were talking a few weeks ago about you know, that probably the Cowboys were a little bit better to win the division, but the Giants would be right there, and we were kind of slotting the Giants in for a potential wild card. I mean, now, you know, they're they're already two games back within their own division of every other team. Have they won? 
They have not. They have they're not. Three. So they're zero and three. So one of the things that so I did I, I will uh, I will make a slight shout out to one of our competitor shows because we're generous like that being professors. A hot takedown um, featuring they actually discuss the issue of Manning and the reason why I mentioned the podcast it's they're actually closing. This is they they finish they after two they almost started the same time they we ran did. out of hot takes they ran out of hot takes actually it's interesting it's interesting one of the observations that they made and this is worth thinking about on, on its own is they kind of began the idea behind hot takes to sort of using statistics to just yeah. to take down all the take crap. down the hot takes yeah take no, down it's, the, it's the a shit. noble it's a noble endeavor and 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 Eli Manning is almost like a, a fountain of this I mean, yeah people shower praise on a guy but statistically he's just mediocre at best and sometimes and it's not horrible. like he's not got personnel to throw it to I mean it's amazing yeah. the receiver cores that that team has the receiver core that that team has right now and and, yeah, they're, they're, and they're not really doing much with it and so I mean it must be very frustrating for a Giants fan, which obviously makes me smile. Uh, but um, but one of the things I, I mentioned in, in the hot takedown was the idea that there hasn't been as many hot, I mean, take hot take that hot takes that they could take down as they would have imagined. Right, almost the they were. Pon, you know, uh, pondering has, has the idea. Kind of the sports reporting of the. Uh, do they focus just on NFL or is it? No, all no, no. Over? They're all, yeah. all sports. So has sports reporting just gotten better? Uh, that was the that uh, was essentially the hypothesis. Without yeah. uh, th- there was there was debate on it, and maybe we can discuss it as well. The idea being that almost 15 years ago, almost daily, you can count on someone saying something stupid. Yeah. Something that completely is countermanded by the data, and yeah. you can just just break it apart. Yeah, or you you know you could say, or you could just give during it the heyday of Joe Morgan, for example. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So for our listeners who don't know, Joe Morgan is oh, a Hall of Fame. Who doesn't know Joe Morgan? Know? Yeah. Joe, Joe Morgan he has, infected our TV for <laughs> yes, generations. He, he did, and he absolutely had no stomach for oh. anything analytical. Yeah, no, yeah, no. That's guy. That's right. That's right. He, he, he how, was. I mean, he was, he was, he was hot take central. Yeah, how, how, I mean, how, at this point, how do you, how do you walk away from this? Here you have Theo Epstein taking two teams that hadn't won in nearly over 100 years in one case and nearly 100 years in another case, and maybe both over 100 years, and, and, and turns them into world champions, champions using analytics. Yeah. How do you walk away from this as well, an idea? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I think it does. I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, obviously, <laughs> to a certain extent, we have to almost like have some kind of empirical analysis of whether the hot takes actually have decreased or not. But but I believe I, I I can certainly believe it, and I can believe that may I, it, it's 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 it would be great. It would be a very optimistic viewpoint to kind of point to like you know maybe an increasing almost numeracy among the entire field of of, of sports, right? Well, I'm not sure it would be numeracy because I don't I don't have that much faith in America. <laughs> well, but what I do is is the inculcation of the or the or in the, the essentially the the widespread acceptance that numbers kind of matter, and yeah. even if you don't understand them, they they just sort of exist. Now we actually have a lot Live poll right now at Wharton at Wharton Moneyball at W Moneyball, essentially asking our our, our our Twitter followers: Is Eli Manning worthy of Hall of Fame? Um, <laughs> I think I think uh, it's interesting um, in terms of there's having, very few quarterbacks that have won two Super Bowls that are not in the Hall of Fame. Um, in fact, yes, and that's a good question. I wonder if there are any at all. Maybe Jim Plunkett, perhaps did he did he win two? I don't think so. And he's certainly not in the Hall of Fame. No. So there are uh, Eli, Eli Manning would be would be a high, hot candidate for being in the Hall yeah, of Fame no, based I, on the, the traditional kind of statistics: taking a team uh, to win two 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 Super Bowls, having terrific longevity. And he's in New York, so and he's in New on York. The TV. And he's, he's on, on Manning. He's in prime time all the time. I mean, we're we're going to have to watch the Giants scuffle in prime time more than, often than we should have to this season because they're New York. Because they're New York. So that's we'll throw that out there to our Says listeners. The Patriots fans. Sorry, the, well, sorry about that, guys. So, so let's actually talk about the. 
the Patriots. I hate to bring it up, but I don't mind. I it. don't it's, mind bringing it up. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you don't mind bringing it up. Um, so interestingly enough, so the Patriots open the season um, losing pretty badly. Yeah. I'm, I'm recapping everyone. I do that yeah. partly for myself because I haven't been on top of being in another country. I, I will say that I did uh, as a one in part of my writing. I was investigating the first the, the early forecasts, and the Patriots were a huge favorite over KC. Yeah. In the in the beginning of the season, mm-hmm. and that's actually where the most uncertainty lies. Obviously, before any information is is observed about a season, you're making all your estimates on the previous season, on, on and signings, on health, and and Patriots were the clear on paper. They looked uh, fantastic and, as usual, and and they were beaten pretty pretty solidly. They definitely were. And what's happened since then? Well, well, what's I mean, happened to the to the uh, the feelings? I mean, the last week we had a we had uh, uh, Tom Brady had one of his absolutely epic games. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, so I it, it's it's I, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. I think with the Patriots, I think what we've been able to establish so far through the three games is that. Brady has not degraded substantially in quality. He seems to still be able to do what he's been doing for the last decade or two. Um, but that the defense is not very good. The defense is not very good. Yeah. So, and that's something that's But even that's that we don't really know about because, for example, in the Houston game, I mean, you look at some, you look at that Houston game and you're like, well, they let off 33 points against Houston. That's not good. That's Can you not name good. the quarterback for Houston? No, I can't. But that's I, not I, saying I, I, that much. I'd have to. Well, Colin Kaepernick? <laughs> no, 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 no. He he he, he might he might start, is he, he could potentially start for Houston. I think. I mean, so Houston does not have a very good t- offense, um, and they scored thirty three points against the Patriots. Some of that was actually defensive points, so there were some turnovers and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so I mean, I think we we don't really necessarily know how good the Patriots are. We think they're pretty good, but that almost applies across the league. There's very few teams that look unambiguously good. It's interesting. You think so. So uh, you think there's, there's more parity this year. I mean, look at the Jets. They won last week. No, I mean, I, I don't think there's more parity. I think <laughs> no. in the end of the season, we will have the same kind of separation of good and bad. And, you know, we, there's some argument to make. We talked about this last week that the, on the bad end, we've got some potentially bad. famously bad teams. We'll see. Um I think but, the Jets were looking to be epically bad, and they yeah, managed no, to I'm win really a fairly convincing so, so that's, victory. That, that's another example. Is that why you're wearing I, green today in honor of the Jets? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> totally. And Matt is also wearing green. We wanted to just l- let our listeners know that you can call in at one eight four four Wharton. You are listening to Wharton Moneyball, where we discuss all things statistics and sports. And we, in fact, actually have a, a caller on the line calling. Uh, Calvin is calling us from Dallas. Uh, Calvin, what is your question? Yeah, I had a question about the uptick of home runs. We all um, do. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, I was reading an article about greenhouse gas, and somebody made the comment that during the um, steroid age, you couldn't quantify how many home runs were attributed to the steroids. So I was wondering if you could give your opinion. I guess it's like 20 or 30 more home runs. but Due to uh, the steroids. Yeah, is it, is it just a function of power and strength? All right. Well, thank opinion on that. Well, we're happy to give your opinion on that. Um, Thank you for your call. Actually, we're going to talk about the subject a little bit more at length at around nine o'clock, and we'll probably bring up the subject again with our second guest, Rick Peterson. PEDs, which which performing enhancing uh, drugs, which namely steroids, absolutely had an effect. We it's hard to figure out exactly what it is because it's it's it's, it's hard to kind of come up with that counterfactual, right? Because you've got people like Barry Bonds or or whoever hitting um, Palermo, McGuire, Sosa. 
and and so I mean, you, what you have to try and separate, you have to kind of create this hypothetical world where somehow, if those guys had not taken steroids, you know, how many of those home runs that they hit would not have been home runs? Um, and it's it's a, it's kind of a difficult calculation because I mean, you know, somebody like Barry Bonds was hitting a lot of home runs even prior to where right. when we sort of suspect he started using performance enhancing drugs. Um, but you can do. I mean, what you can try and do is, uh, I mean, the way you could try and engage that question, the way uh, you know a lot of forecasting systems for baseball players are still done, is you can try and kind of find some kind of historical match. Like you could take Barry Bonds' early career when he wasn't on steroids, find the players in historical record that match as closely as possible that, and then see where they how they went because you know like somebody like i don't know roberto clemente who, whoever you might pick ted williams was not on steroids and you can sort of say like well he hit this many home runs with that same tra- similar trajectory and so that's what barry bond should have done and then you can try and attribute a certain the surplus or yeah. something like that to steroids it's a difficult exercise though. so one of, one of the, the the hard evidence that we have of course is you can see the spike if you just look at the time series of home runs it spiked and you can see how it that's basically right. diminished over time which is why today's upsurge is so interesting, and then we'll return to that conversation later. But there is one ac- aspect of the upsurge which isn't ha- doesn't have to do with the balls. It's just the type of player that is making the major leagues. Yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, Neil Payne had a terrific uh, article recently on Five Thirty Eight talking about why are there so many Adam Duns walking around? Now, well, who is Adam Dunn? Adam is the classic slugger who does nothing else, and but he does three things: three things in huge numbers. One is hit home runs, the other is walk, and the third is strikeout. Yeah. And classically, that that was thought of as a as a as a rare beast, something that you didn't really want, um, you, you, you didn't really want want to have on your team. Just a couple, and Adam Dunn was considered to be a dead weight in many respects. Never got much cred. But now you take a guy like like there's a, there's 15 of them. Yeah. And there's actually a criteria in having at least 80 RBIs, uh, 100 100 walks, at least 200 start 150 or 180 strikeouts, and say 30 or 40 home runs. There's so many of them in the major leagues, and so that's almost as if there's been a new philosophy about what yeah. kind of player is effective. And back then we didn't. Um, it wasn't quite so well understood, but it, it, it's the, the what you were referring to, Shane, was the longevity. Yeah, the steroids brought out longevity out of yeah. Hitters. No, that's right. I mean, you know, you kind of look at somebody like, you, I mean, Barry Bonds obviously played into his forties. Roger Clemens is uh, another On example side, of, yeah. of of a player that had certainly a very unusual trajectory in his late career. He just seemed to like, you know, if if anything, find this sort of second wind to his career, and so everybody, you know, obviously suspects that there was a, a cause of that second one. Well, we actually have been talking a little bit of baseball. I want to return us just to a short bit about football because we're going to be spending the last half hour almost exclusively talking about football and giving, giving our take on some of the on uh, the games coming up this week. Um, but I just wanted to close our conversation about the, the New England Patriots. They opened the season as a huge favorite. I mean, yeah. I mean it was it's fairly compressed, at least at the top. There are lots and lots of teams with decent power rankings. Uh, but the Patriots began the season with a, a plus seven and that's about a touchdown on a neutral field against any team, the next best team with a four. Yeah. Um, that's actually converged at this point. I think the, uh, the KC and, and, is, uh, and, and New England are— I mean, KC is the only team that looks unambiguous, you know, that hasn't really had sort of a slip-up yet. I mean, you right. could sort of say that, like, you know, almost losing to the Eagles maybe counts. But, um, but even, you know, Atlanta is 3-0, and but they're barely 3-0, and, and they, they should probably not be 3-0, and but— so we'll yeah, have a chance to c- come back to football and yeah. talk about all these intricacies um, and all the ups and downs. There's also a lot of college football going on. Um, I have actually had almost no opportunity to watch any of the college football. I did get a chance to sort of, you know, s- 
think a little bit about Ohio State's loss in the very first mm-hmm. game of the season and what that meant for what that means for their future. Uh, Alabama seems to be rolling over everyone as they do. If, I think the last week's game was over Vanderbilt was like fifty to nothing or forty nine to nothing. It was in, it was pretty much insane. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about analytics though in football as it, sort of in general. I mean, as I'm putting together a lot of information to prepare for the show, just thinking about statistics in general, we certainly know that baseball has absorbed analytics overwhelmingly, and basketball has too. There's a lot of talk about analytics in football, but I just don't see it on the field in the way that we've seen it in the other two sports. Would you agree with that that sentiment? I think it has not pervaded the. Uh, yes, I think its prominence, you know, has not is not as much in in football or or hockey. Hockey probably is even farther behind football. Um, but hockey seems to be trying. I mean, they're hiring people. They're actually trying oh, football, to put together. Football is definitely hiring people, But what are they doing? What's, what's the, what's the on-the-field observation? Are you noticing anything? Or are there contracts being given? Are there plays that are being made? Are there offenses and defenses being reworked? I mean, basketball analytics has had a huge impact on personnel and, and in some sense, field mechanics in baseball. We know yeah. that. Foot, basket, basketball and baseball have seen it. What do we see from the fans' perspective? Well, I, I think it's more difficult. That's a, that's a tough kind of comparison because I think more of football is sort of like based on adversarial strategy, and 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 you you know you want you essentially hidden hidden sort of strategy, right? I mean, you don't want to be kind of overt with your with your analytical strategy in football because you know you've you're trying to design plays that essentially trick the other team or fool the right. other team, and so. Um, I think it's it's less obvious than it. Like in baseball, we can say I I know I can see the players in weird positions on the field. Like there's some kind of weird defensive shift, and I assume that that is analytically motivated, and that's something I can see. And it's not like the opposing team that's hidden from the opposing team or the fans. Mm-hmm. Whereas if football is 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 basically, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of. I mean, one thing that you can point to obviously is. Compared to 20 years ago, you know, you know, there's a lot different of a fourth down strategy. Is there? You, oh yeah, and in what way? I mean, for, um, pe- they go. You for more often? never used to go for it like on fourth and like four or five mm-hmm. at, at midfield. midfield or somewhere like that. And a lot of teams do that because now. we because in in my observation, they're still so far away from doing the right thing consistently. Yeah, yeah. I, we had a counterexample sort of this actually. I was at the I was at the Eagles game on Sunday, which was a fantastic. It was exciting game. Sixty-one yard field goal. Sixty-one yard field goal to win it. Epic. But right before the half, the Eagles had the ball at around midfield, essentially, and went for it on fourth and eight. Terrific. Yeah, it was a terrible play. They gave it up, and the Giants marched down. Is that the right move? I don't even know. Fourth and eight eight is is a lot of yards, man. And so I, I mean, it's interesting. And that would be that especially. Would be something, I think they ran a draw play so, or so something. Ma- it was so maybe bizarre. we'll have to check what the fourth down bot says about that. But I actually wanted to ask you another question about mm. about. Uh, so uh, Ben Morris also at five thirty eight has published a recent article on one of his favorite topics, which essentially is decision making yeah. in football. So uh, I don't know whether it was last year or the year before they made the extra point. Uh, kick to the 15 yard line yep. which is which made it go from a 98 99% probability to about a 94% probability which made mathematically in terms of expected points it equal to the fourth to the the two point conversion yeah so we asked ask the basic question are there places where you should definitely be going for two points and places where you shouldn't and are the field, the teams following it and so he he wrote an interesting article based on they have an, essentially a a model which tells you the probability of winning the game given the the differential in mm-hmm. score and the yard line 
and and he essentially pointed out that there is a number of places in the game that you absolutely must go for two points and nobody ever does. And one of them is being down by four after you've just scored a touchdown and it's 10 minutes to go or less in the fourth quarter. You and his his argument is that and teams his, don't do I, I, they don't do it nobody does it they nobody all kick does the extra point and so that they're down by three. Oh, oh, you're down by four. You're down without by four. The convert- I, so you yeah, have yeah, a yeah. choice to make. So let's just for our listeners, just make it clear: you're down by four. You've just scored a touchdown, and the touchdown has brought you within four. What every team does is kick the extra point to be within three, so that they're within a field goal of the other team. Yeah. And what? And explain to me why that's not well the, uh, the right so thing to do. The right thing to do is you want to get that. You want to get the advantage. You'd rather be ahead than tied. Yeah, sure. No, that that. But but. If you ma- don't make that, I mean, if so you don't make that two-point problem- conversion, then you're no longer within a field goal. No, so, so, so here you basically it's, it's are essentially, done. It's essentially an argument. There's a couple years back where Green Bay uh, uh, went, drove the entire length of the field. They were yeah. in 30 seconds. They had 30 seconds left to go in the game. They were on the two-yard line. I mean, they'd scored a touchdown, and they had to decide whether to go for an extra point to tie it and or take a or go for the conversion to win it. Mm-hmm. And they took the extra point to tie it only to lose it in overtime. Yeah. And the mathematics of it was it basically it was about a 41% chance of winning if they if they kicked the field goal and then beat a better team in overtime. That was the the, the premise is that they were a weaker team and and even still uh, if you if you work it out even if it was 50-50 they were still a bad move and instead of going for something immediately to win it at about a 50% probability and essentially what what uh, what the idea is if you don't stop the other team you're going to lose the game well it's it's pretty obvious why that's the case right yeah, I, I think I, I, psychologically, it's pretty obvious why so exactly. coaches don't do that. So why because, do you think it's obviously well, be, well, because if you make the decision to go, for, if you could have tied the game and you make the decision to win the game and you lose, mm-hmm. that's all entirely on the coach. That's right. The hundred percent that blame falls on the coach. Maybe like one percent on whatever play they ran, and maybe a player screwed up. But it's basically a hundred percent on the coach. If you make the kind of conventional decision. And then you lose in overtime. Well, then that's going to parcel out the blame to a lot of people, right? Yeah. You know, the defense couldn't stop them in overtime, or the offense couldn't get going in overtime, or, you know, the coin flip just didn't work out for us, and the other team got the ball and kicked an easy field. Whatever happens, it's, you know, the focus of the blame is not entirely on that decision. That's a very high leverage decision. And so I think psychologically, that's a lot of the reason why some of these kind of what we call obvious, you know, kind of strategies. Um, don't get implemented very quickly in football because, you know, there's a lot of there's, pressure on the coach. So and so this is the, the real fundamental question. So the reason why I bring this one up is the math is extremely persuasive. The gap is huge. I would have to see the math behind the two that two-point conversion at the That's end right. of the game to not get – I mean – because basically, know. what's happened? If you sort of think about it, if you if you hold the team, if you bring it, if you you bring it to a tie, you've got to hold them, and then you have to, which is, and then you have yeah. to score a touch, a, a field goal, or a touchdown to to, uh, to yeah. win. If no, you, I mean again, if we're in the last like minute or something like that, we're, so we're talking deep in the fourth quarter. So my, the argument is is that if you go ahead. If you go ahead, you'll be winning a touch. You have to hold them. That's almost a preference. I mean, you have to have that. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do anything. You have to hold them, and either a field goal or a a touchdown will win the game, win it outright. 
But if you if you go for the extra point, you got to have a, a field goal to tie, and then it goes on. Yeah. And, and 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 a touchdown, of course, would win it. But if you miss the extra, if you miss the conversion, you. You, the, the, the field goes off the table, and now you still have the touchdown. So basically, if you work it out, the options, the the the, the paths to winning are just much yeah, but greater. you gave this scenario where there's like 40 seconds left in the Well, game. that was the Green Bay play, but we're just talking about it late yeah, in the fourth quarter. Yeah, but I mean, quarter. like, with that little amount of time left, you know, you you don't... The, the, ne- the next series then almost the next ha- series. has to be a field right, goal. So, you don't really have a chance to score another touchdown. Right, so my... my uh, so I mean, Mary, maybe Aaron Rodgers does. That guy can <laughs> right, throw it right. about 90 yards, yeah. but, you know, So the general. issue is about within somewhere in the fourth quarter, what is the general yeah. rule? And, and what Ben Morris calculated is that really any time in the fourth quarter, with really any decent team's probability of... Not even decent, just yeah. every, major, every professional sports probability of scoring, a, which ranges from about 45% to about 55%, converting the two points... Yeah. That it's just a no-brainer, and it comes out to actually, it's it's the biggest probability advantage. It's a, it comes out to about a game every three years. Right. <laughs> it gotcha. sounds like nothing, gotcha. but but an extra winning game every three years if this is the strategy you take. So yeah, no, a, definitely. That, and I I think, I think the reason I mean probably coaches have seen this. You know, probably this has been some analytical person has presented this to several coaches in the NFL and they've been like, well, that's great, but I'm definitely but I'm not de- going to do that and, and, and because this, it's going to be entirely on me if they lose. I mean, this is re- really what it comes down to is the, the lack of acceptance of in the general public of trying, of doing the things which are mathematically, statistically correct. Well, I, I think what you would need to have happen is somebody who is incredibly secure in their job, like somebody like Belichick or something like that, By the to way, try it. Uh, in the article, Bell, he goes. Ben Morris goes through all the times that people have screwed it up, and the on the there's and he looks and he finds who was the one coach who did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Belichick. Belichick, and it's so nuts because here he is winning year after year. Now everyone likes to point to the staff. You know, you know, mm-hmm. he's got Tom Brady. He's, before that, you know, it just you don't have to invest in a quarterback, and you have that solid anchor to a team. You can really build a team. But he's also smart. Mm-hmm. Cheats a little too. Well, yeah. <laughs> if you're not cheating, if you're, you're not cheating, you're not trying. You're not trying. That is absolutely one of the best uh, <laughs> observations we can make. Uh, anyway, so this uh, concludes the first uh, our first uh, um, quarter of our our, our Wharton Moneyball show. We've we've devoted most of the first quarter to football. Our middle two uh, sections of our of our Wharton Moneyball two hour show here on Sirius XM 111 will be devoted to baseball. When we come back after our break, we're going to be speaking to our longtime guest and friend of the show, Rick. Peterson, we will be delighted to uh, join you in about, uh, I don't know, a few minutes. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, where all things sports and all things statistics are merged. We are here at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School on Locust Walk, Huntsman Hall. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics, and I'm joined with my friend and colleague, also of the Department of Statistics, Shane Jensen. You know, there used to be a time, Shane, when we'd say we were a statistician and people would look at us like, you what? Yeah. And now, it's just the hottest thing going. Yeah. I, I mean, mean I, I say data scientists now. And do it's you even really? hotter. It's but even yeah. hot. You yeah. know, Yale University, my alma mater, they changed the name of their department. It's now the Department of Statistics and Data Science. Got to hop on. We really should hop on. You know, there's a now a, here at the University of Pennsylvania, the, the uh, engineering school, just created a data science minor and a data science master's degree. And uh, we are lagging behind in the statistics department, keeping our old name, and yeah. we don't have any new programs. And, you know, we're just going to have to change that. It is sexier, data science. Well, and I think it's actually a little bit more informative, right? I mean, 
you know, you can, at least to somebody like you, if you're describing yourself to somebody who's not, you know, experienced with statistics and everything else, data science, I think, is a little bit more of a descriptive term for it what is. we do. I, and also, I think it encompasses all of what we do, yeah. not just the inferential part, but also the data aggregation and collection yep. and then the application. But that's a whole separate topic no, yeah, by no, itself. I, mean, I think could... I would return, I'd like to return to baseball Let's do with it. a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. On the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. We'd like to welcome to our show Rick Peterson, former Major League pitching coach for the Mets, the A's, the Brewers, the Orioles. He was right there in the thick of it in the in back in the 90s with the Oakland A's when they were on their winning streak during the Moneyball era, and he's now a sought-after motivational speaker, and he's also the co-author of a new book, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. I would really like to welcome my friend and regular show guest, Rick Peterson. How are you, Rick? Man, I'm doing great. So I was trying to like, I love this whole data science thing. That's awesome. Right? I'm trying to think like, maybe I'm like a pitching mental scientist. That's yeah. good. That go with it. How about pitching but, mentalist? I think a lot of people call me a mad scientist. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Rick, you have a reputation of being one of the one of the big brains of of uh, baseball, and we'd like to. It's great to have you on our show. You've been with us since the, almost the very beginning, and yeah. uh, it's great to have you in the baseball during the baseball season. The baseball season is rounding out, but it is getting extremely exciting. Um, we got six teams who have won their basically won their divisions. I don't think the only division race that's still open is the yes. American League East. I don't think they're giving the Yankees too much of a shot, but there's, uh, what, five games left? And uh, I think if the Red Sox three games back, I mean, that would be... Did the Cubs clinch their division? Yeah, I think they're basically, there's something like five games up on St. Louis now. Yeah. Are they? So yeah. that's pretty much it. And uh, so the, I don't think the Yankees have too much, but the, the Red Sox could collapse. I would root heavily for that. Nobody likes a one-game playoff. So let's just talk about that. Yankees, it's going to be the Yankees versus the Twins. The Twins shouldn't even be anywhere close to the playoffs. Well, as opposed to the Yankees, who are definitely destined for the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, actually, I will I'll re- recap. Let's roll this back. Do you guys do you remember Rick in the beginning of the season? What were the? What do you have any? No one has any recollection of what what they, what we thought before the season began. What would you have any recollection? What what the what the insiders thought about the Yankees and the Twins? Well, the, the Twins were you know total rebuild without question, and at the at, and at the trade deadline, they they positioned themselves as a rebuild. They traded Jaime Garcia. They traded their all-star uh, closer, Kinsler. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they they thought they were still rebuilding at that time. Um, so, but but I think it, it, to that point, and 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 the Yankees as well. When you have young, extremely extremely talented players, you really don't know, and it's so infectious. I mean that that was really the Moneyball. I mean that that's what we went through in Moneyball. When you look at the young core of Mulder, Hudson, Zito, um, Tejada, Chavez, um, you know, you look at Ramon, uh, Ramon Hernandez, A.J. Hinch, who's managing, uh, who's managing Houston now. Um, I mean, when 
once those things start going, I, I can remember one day we were we were it was like a team stretch. You know, the guys were laying on the ground, and I was standing there talking to uh, Hudson and, and Eric Chavez, and they're going like, "God, this is like so cool right here." He said, "You know what? I, I would negotiate." A million dollars a year for a ten-year contract with Billy Bean right now, just to do this for the next decade. And and after you know, before the game, Billy was in the locker room. I said, Billy, you might as well negotiate that contract now. You get a good deal. <laughs> do you think? Do you think so? That that Ace team was very young. And one of the things that's remarkable is that these resurgent teams are quite young. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is this something? What what what's created this? Is this because of the finances? Is it because of the training? What it didn't seem to be. Maybe it just it's my poor recollection that the champion teams teams of yesteryear were so young. I, I have well, a, I have I have a theory, but I, I'd like to hear yeah. Rick's first. Well, I, I I really just think that times are so advanced that and because and I think social media is a part of it that 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 you're you're global. Everyone is global. I mean, you can tweet, you can Facebook, you can, you know, whatever it is that you want to do on social media, and it's global. I mean, look at look at our president. Are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, he he tweets more than anybody, and it's a and it's a global effect. And, and so I think from that standpoint, the training mechanism, you know, the I think reality TV makes makes everybody who's just you know the average normal person or maybe a little bit above average whatever you know makes makes you look like hey i'm as good as that person i can be this good and and i think because one of the most difficult things in order to settle into the big leagues is not your physical talent which we've talked about consistently it's it's your mental talent and and it goes back to you know jordan spieth at the british open after the 13th hole when he hit a ball 100 yards into the rough to the right and at, while they were walking to the next tee, the 14th tee, his caddy, the weekend before, Jordan Spieth went to Cabos in Mexico to spend a weekend with Michael Phelps and Michael Jordan. And as they were walking to the next tee, his caddy said, hey, Jordan, you know, remember last weekend? You're one of those guys. You're one of them. You're the only person who doesn't know it right now. You better start acting like one of them. So you're, you're, are you trying to, to tell us that basically at a young age people believe in themselves in a way that they never would have and they are therefore better than they could ever have been? And that's part of it. And I guess the second piece is that the general availability of high-tech training techniques has gotten younger people so much better than they used to? Or is there a piece of exactly. it that I'm missing? No, I, I think that's the piece. And, and I think it's just the, you know, the, the, scale, the scaling of DNA you know, people live longer. They're they're young. They stay younger longer. Um, you know, the whole deal. Look at yeah, look, look, at Tom, at, look at Tom Brady. You know? Yeah, and I, I mean, um, I, you know, I guess the theory I was going to propose is, is is specifically kind of you know, I kind of think that this particular era is not necessarily the exception. I think it was the kind of PED era that was the exception. I think for most of the history of baseball, having good young talent is obviously going to be fortuitous because you know they're you know. Typically, people, you know, by their mid-30s are not as good at baseball as they were in their late 20s. Except we had one particular era where people were able to sustain kind of that high quality well into sort of like, you know, they were able to, you know, sign two or three free agent contracts through their career and still be proficient. And that's, I think, sort of gone away again now. So the Yankees, for example, let's take the Yankees. The Yankees used to not build a team the way they currently have built their team, where they, you know, are pay, actually patient and assemble young talent. Who, who has, who they has, would sign free agents, right? Does the Yankees? Have, I mean, it's, you look at free agents, and they don't seem to be a good deal. They're too expensive. They're too uncertain. They're old. They're old. 
It's right. it's really now I, I, we don't think we've ever asked you at least in my recollection we've asked you but in your years in baseball how uh, how upfront were the PED, PEDs when they were being used did you see them as a coach did you were no. you aware of them no no I was I was I was totally blind they were right in front of my face and I never saw it yeah. wow that's I mean, very and, I mean there was always like the kind of like you know hand over your mouth like joke like <laughs> you know like hey. You yeah. know, like 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 a, you have a big spike in velocity or a big spike in home runs or going <laughs> hey you know mm, you drugs right interesting so uh, uh, Rick we'd like to ask you a couple questions about uh, two topics but we'll start off with more more, more uh, sort of uh, right on the plate here we got the playoffs emerging most of the picture mm-hmm. is really really uh, settled what do you think about the strategy for the playoffs so let's start off with the one game playoffs typically we're imagining it's going to be the Yankees versus the Twins how should that get played maybe differently than you would a regular game. Well, obviously, I mean, the whole cliche, one of the major cliches of baseball, it's like, hey, no problem, let's go get them tomorrow. And then you, then you hit this playoffs, and, and you say a one-game playoff. The one-game playoff to start off with with the wild card is no different than the fifth game of the first round or the seventh game of the second two rounds. You know, nope, it's not you right. Get to, yeah, once you get to the seventh game of the World Series or seventh game of the second round for the league championship – it's it's a one game playoff. But you're looking at a, you have you have prep time. So both the Yankees right, and the right, Twins right. know that's coming. They know a date. It's like they have it on. How how what are the Yankees going to do with their pitching staff in particular? Are well, they going to start? First of all, first of all, both of these teams are very fortunate that they have prep time yeah. because very often this comes down to the last couple of days and what you'd hate to have happen. And it would be the worst scenario for the Red Sox and and the Yankees if they ended up tied. And they had to play a one game playoff. <laughs> the played the one yeah. game playoff. Oh it's, man. That, that would that would and, and and what happened to us one year in Oakland, and I don't know if they've changed the rules, but it was very probable coming down right about this time, like a, like on a on a Tuesday Wednesday of the final week of the season, that it was very probable that we could tie with Seattle for the division lead, and we would be also tied with the wild card team. I feel like that's actually come up more a couple within the last few yeah. seasons there was potential for a three-way tie and i remember at the time we had to look up the rules cuz nobody really knew how it was going to actually be played out right and well, I, well, I don't know what it is right now but back back in that time what would have happened would would have been us in Seattle would have played a one-game playoff for the division yeah, title. Yeah, i think you have to establish mm-hmm. the division first and right, then but listen, there's but listen what would happen yeah. the losers out because it's it's not considered a playoff game it's considered a regular season game Oh God! So yeah, right. So you could tie for your division, play a one-game playoff, and lose, and you're out of the playoff picture. When when you could you could almost decide to throw the last game. So the wild, so you don't. Go so the tie. other wild card team is basically in no matter what. Then right, yeah. Right. Right. But it's interesting because you you're now asking almost a, a question. If you are that team who is let's say let's say the Yankees are are uh, let's say the Red Sox lose and and now the Yankees are half game out in the last game of the season, if they. It, now there isn't a wild card that they're tying with, but let's say that let's say there would be a wild card that they would be tied mm-hmm. with if they if they won the game. It's almost as if they should lose the game. It, it's it's or maybe I'm not working it out, but you you, you almost have a, a decision yeah, you, to make. You, lo- you lose on a Friday so that you don't have to be tied. So you don't yeah. have to be tied, and then you can, then you go into the wild card, right. and then you play your one game playoff, and that's it. Otherwise, you're playing a one game playoff, and you're out as opposed to. Well, I guess yep. if you can win it. So this is these are the complications which are interesting. But let's go actually specifically to the Yankees versus the Twins. What do you think the Yankees should do? Should they start? I mean, uh, with their bullpen in particular, they're probably going to start with Severino as their best pitcher. Should they? I mean, let's say he, he pitches four or, or even five good innings. 
What do you What do you think Girardi should be doing at that point? Yeah, should you go, do, I mean, I guess with you by your statement earlier, would you sort of manage it like a game seven where it's all hands on deck? Without question, there's no question about it because I got to tell you, as we've all seen these champagne showers in the in the locker room after after you clinch a playoff berth, mm-hmm. that that is like spectacular. It's what you live for in baseball, without question. As as the, the joy that you feel for that one game or, or that, that celebration, that champagne celebration, the, 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 what do I say, the misery, you know, the, the awful feeling that you have when you get knocked out, uh, knocked out of the playoff is a hundred times worse than the joy that you feel by getting into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And, and for each champagne shower you have, the deeper you go, the worse that misery gets. Without, without question. So if I were to be analytical about it, I would say the Yankees' Girardi should be starting Severino for five innings, no more, and then he should be doing bang, 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 one, 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 one with his four, his four big guns in the bullpen. Do you agree or do you think I'm being... Uh... No, no, you don't, go in, you don't go in with a concrete plan. You, you go in with, like, multiple different scenarios. So, so you say, all right, after the, after the fifth inning, okay, like, for example, we had Game 7 against the Cardinals to go to the World Series. We had Oliver Perez starting, which was like Oliver Perez, that's all we had. You know, <laughs> yeah, Al Duque it, was down. Right. Yeah. You know, Al Duque mm-hmm. was down, Pedro was down. And you know, you kinda went into that game saying, Okay, once you get past the fifth inning, there's no way that Oliver Perez is gonna face a a, a right hand hitter that, that could cost us the game. He's not facing that guy. We have the bullpen that to, to in order to do this. Severino, on the other hand, is one of the more, more dominant pitchers in the game today. When, when he's on his game, he's as dominant as anybody in the game. So, you know, you, 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 you'll give him a little bit more space. The other big factor, he's never pitched in a postseason game. On the other hand, the, the Twins will have probably Santana pitching, who's, who's pitched in postseason. You know, he, he's been there before. And, and I don't care how good you are in the course of a season. Kershaw is a great example of how good you are during the season and then what happens in the playoffs. Just because you're that good in the, in the regular season, the, the postseason, for whatever reason, you know, the heart, it's a different heartbeat. It's a different mentality. It, it's very difficult. Um, you know, I remember talking to, you know, Tom Glavin. If you look at Tom Glavin and, and uh, Greg Maddox's postseason, first couple postseasons, they weren't very good. They weren't very good at all. And, and they basically said, you know, Tom said, I, I had to get my mind wrapped around and say, like, I'm, I'm going to treat this like a Little League game. You know, it's almost like you have to reframe your mind. Um, I, I remember talking to Pat Henkin, who won the Cy Young Award with, with, um, with the Blue Jays, and I asked Pat, I said, like, how did you get yourself, your mind, ready for the postseason in, in the World Series? He said, well, we were playing the Phillies, and we played the Phillies, like, more, more than any other team in spring training. And for me to make the team as a young pitcher – I had to be able to beat the Phillies in spring training because that's who I pitched against so often. And he said, I had to go back. I said, this is a spring training game. So in other words, you reframe your mind, you know, to a different place. I remember when they asked Derek Jeter on Derek Jeter Day, like, Derek, did you ever get get nervous in the postseason? He said, yeah, when when my teammates were hitting. (laughs) 
<laughs> Never when he was hitting himself. So it's interesting. So you know, all the research that we have done on, on, on baseball, we know that despite the uh, despite all the regular season, it basically becomes a coin toss, and all the more so in yep. a single game playoff. So yep. I'm of course rooting for the Yankees in their in their one game shot against the Twins. They're probably considered I don't the favorite. Think you have to worry? Do the Twins ever beat the Yankees in the playoffs? In the playoffs, you know, are you really putting that much credit in the past? Um, are you are you taking a bet? Uh, and in what kind of odds? Well, we'll I, I'm still going one to one. So that's really interesting. There's another thing that that uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, I'd love to be able to talk to you about baseball for for quite some time. Um, you know, Aaron Judge has seen a, again another resurgence. He went half a season; he was unbelievable, and then he had about a month and a half where he was really bad with record-breaking strikeout in a row. And then all of a sudden, in the last month or so, he's been again unbelievable. Do you think um, you think he's in the running for 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 MVP? Absolutely, with, without question. Um, I don't think he's going to win it. But he's definitely in the running. I mean, when I mean, you look at what he's done. If you took a, I'm going to ask you, this is, let's, let's roll back the clock, say, um, 20 years now, before the sabermetric revolution. I would, I, my guess is, and I'd, and I'd like to hear both Shane and you, Rick's, Rick's take on it, he'd be the lock. That's probably true because, you know, 50 the, home, runs, home runs, 120 RBIs. And he plays for New York. Plays for New York. He's a solid fielder. He's got the look. I mean, what, what do you think, Rick? Well, the fact that Altuve has just been so good for so long. And and he's really the, you know, what do you say, the spark plug, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, for for Houston. Um, and, and and you need that type of, you know, spark plug. Um, but but I mean, to your point, it's a it's a valid point. But but I think now, um, to, to your point, that the the writers are so conscious of making the right decision, and they brought in so many different factors. And I and I think it's just a whole nother level, of you know, and it's the whole debate of. You know, going back to Trout, you know, when, when the Angels weren't, you know, they, they, they were much better this year and stayed in contention. Um, but, but again, they stayed in contention because there's so many teams that were just, like, trying to get above 500. I mean, when you look at the teams that were actually fighting for a playoff spot, I mean, and, and you know, I was talking to one of my good friends that w- we, was part of the Moneyball team, um, and Someone asked him, like, what do you think about what Cleveland has done compared to what we did when we won 20 consecutive games and Cleveland won 22? And he said, there's no comparison. He said, when we won 20 consecutive games, see, we, we won 103 games that year. Seattle won, or, or uh, the Angels won 99, and Seattle won 94. I mean, that's amazing. And we played each other 19 times. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so when you look at... During the streak, you played them? Or were you, were you playing weaker teams during the streak? Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't recall in my memory. I'd have to go back and take a look at who we played. But, but just the fact that the grind, I mean, when you take one division, 103, 99, and like 94, mm-hmm. something like that, that's, that's amazing. When you, look at, when you look at how many teams are going to win 100 games this year. Uh, maybe, ju- maybe just the Dodgers. Are the only- maybe. That's yeah. it. I mean, right. this is. I mean, it's. It's. There has been a push towards parity, although in baseball, though not. Although it's interesting, I did take an opportunity to look at the preseason forecast. Uh, at least I, I grabbed ESPN, and the the six teams that they predicted to win the divisions were the six teams that won the division. Mm-hmm. It's. Mm-hmm. It seems a little ironic, yeah, Shane. I actually want to come back to this MVP sort of a uh, question. Would I mean how? I mean, I know it's not particularly common, but could you see a pitcher winning the MVP? In today's game, I don't think the voters will go that way. Mm-hmm. I, I think they really, I think they've really defined that it's the most valuable player, not the most yeah. valuable. You know, I mean, because I mean, you look at some, something like the WAR leaderboards, and like right beside Aaron Judge, same WAR value as Chris Sale. Yep. 
Chris Sale, and actually, I think it undercuts. I mean, my my view of of war for pitchers tends to undervalue the mm-hmm. great pitchers, and uh, I think Kershaw, if he hadn't been injured, w- would be. I mean, there's a huge. The, the players have um, they have three components. They add them up. I mean, one of the things I did look at the war leaderboards, which is interesting for the first, if you look at the top ten, eleven leaderboards, three of the guys in the leaderboards are defensive specialists. Mm-hmm. Al- Alderton Simmons is one of the top three in war. He's a decent hitter. He's not great by any stretch. It's because he's a wizard in the outfield. I mean, in the in the infield, and also uh, Kiermaier, the the unbelievable center fielder for um, mm-hmm. who's he play for? Tampa. Tampa. Who's and uh, and this guy, this other other incredible incredible center fielder was it Braxton or um, just amazing. Okay. Uh, and it, and it's all because of of Statcast and and the analysis that just shows that these guys are saving, you know, three saving four work. wins alone in the in the field. You, do you actually think you're seeing that if you watch the game? Is it is are they better fielders than they used to be? Or are we just having a better sense of how valuable they are? I think I think because we have it goes back to what we've said many times. In God we trust. All others have all others must have data. So when you can actually measure it, I mean, when you can really measure it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, then you can then you can quantify it. Obviously, I mean you're, you're you guys are the data scientists. <laughs> we are. Let me, let, let me let me bring up this point because I think I think this is a really valid point when you talk about a pitcher, you know, being Sale versus Judge as MVP. Sale's had a couple rough games over over the season. The difference between a player and a pitcher, Judge went through that really incredibly rough time as you as you chronicled and you mentioned. He's out there every day. It's not right. like, all right, you had, you're going through a rough time. All right, we'll give you four days off, and you can come back on the fifth day and see if you can get your mind right. You know, a pitcher has a rough time as a starter, and you got four or five days in order to, like, get your mind back and, and prepare for this setback. A, a, an everyday player, it's like, hey, I'm sorry, but you're playing. You're, we, we need you in the lineup because you may run into one of these and hit a homer and, and make, be the difference in the game. You know, so to grind through that mentally – and do it in New York. I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, I applaud Aaron Judge. I mean, he 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 has a Derek Jeter type mind, you know, for for a young player. We know and, what Rick. We're gonna we're gonna be watching Aaron Judge through the next few years to see whether that that prediction mm-hmm. comes through a Derek Jeter like mind because that is high praise right there. So, Rick, I wanted to thank you. We're we're coming to the end of our our second uh, half hour. Um, thanks for joining us on the show. It's always terrific to have you, and we'll be delighted to welcome you back in the show in a couple weeks on our usual program as we'll be deep into the playoff in baseball. Awesome. Always one of my highlights. All Thanks right. for having me. Guys. You're welcome, Rick. So that bring, brings to a close our first hour. When we come back from our break, we're going to be talking to Alan Nathan, the baseball physicist, and we'll be discussing the home run surge and the data that supports that. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Toward Moneyball, where all things statistics and sports and their intersection are discussed. Maybe we should change the intro to recognize that we're no longer st- statisticians, we're data scientists. I think that's the right move. I think it's a good I'm going to get my business cards reprinted. Uh, absolutely. So this is, a sport, this is the data science show, the, the sports data science show starring Shane Jensen of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. 
We are here on Locust Walk. I'm Professor Adi Weiner, also of the Department of Statistics of the Wharton Business School, enjoying my one week back in the United States while I'm on sabbatical where I'm spending almost the entirety of the semester in Israel and having a uh, great relaxing time, time to focus on... Very on, jealous. Very jealous. Well, uh, Shane, I'm reminding you, you had your sabbatical yeah, last Yeah, no, I, li- I live that dream. That's why I'm so jealous. And, I, know, and you, I know what you're going through. And you probably have another one stored up in the pike. We get, we, get, uh, we get a half a year every six years, so that's the benefit, one of the benefits of being a professor. And now I'd like to welcome to our show uh, a professor, uh, Alan Nathan. Alan is a professor emeritus of physics at the University of Illinois, uh, Professor Nathan Allen Nathan received his bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Maryland back in 1968 and his PhD in physics from Princeton University. He joined the Department of Physics at the University of Illinois as assistant professor way back in 1977. And in his recent years, he's focused on the physics of baseball, and that has come up in the news extensively. And Alan has been right in the thick of it. I want to welcome to our show, Alan Nathan. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. This is a great time for baseball, as you, as you, as I'm sure you can appreciate. And you've certainly been um, right in the thick of this of this um, this observation. This is a, just a, just last week. I think we set the record. Uh, we? What am I talking about? We? I haven't done anything. I'm just sitting in my chair. Uh, but Major League Baseball players have set a record of the most home runs ever hit in a season, and that that of course uh, triumphs over the the peak, which was in the in the the steroid era back in 2000. And so the real question has been, it's not the players who are juiced, but maybe the balls are juiced. So Alan, why don't you, have been involved in this, this discussion, the data collection, the analysis from the beginning. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, just some background on, on, this, on this question of, of the balls? Yeah, uh, so uh, I think people started noticing uh, an increase in home runs uh, that began, curiously enough, uh, right around the All-Star break in 2015. Things looked pretty normal for the first half of 2015. Then they started seeing home runs on the rise. And, uh, oh, people started writing articles about it. And uh, as it turns out, these days, there's a lot of information, a lot of data that are available that make looking into this uh much easier than it ever used to be. You know, so we have the StatCast data, which tells you about exit velocities and launch angles and such things like that. And also, I, 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 it also imparts uh, the stat inform, information also tells you the spin on the ball. Is that true? It does tell you the spin on the ball. In, in, in most cases, sometimes it misses it. But, yeah, you, you okay. get the spin on the ball. Uh, it, uh, basically, what, what StatCast does is it tracks uh, the... Uh, the, everything on the field, uh, the players on the field, but especially the ball, so the, the pitched ball and the batted ball. So you have, you literally have the actual trajectory uh, of uh, every batted ball hit. Oh, yeah, I mean, it misses a few of them, but basically you have a tremendous amount of information. So you can kind of uh, use that information to try to figure out what 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 is the reason for the big surge in home runs? As I said, it began roughly the All Star break of 2015, continued through 2016, and has even continued to rise through 2017. As as, as you just noted, the record for the most home runs in a season uh, was was just set, and so people have been asking the question why, and uh, and various 
possibilities have come up. Is it the baseball? Uh, now, when people talking about the baseball being juiced, and this conversation comes up every now and then in baseball, I think it way back in the 2000 season, the first two or three months of the season, the number of home runs were much, much higher than than typical, and people were suspecting then that the baseball the ball had been juiced. Yeah. juiced. So, mm-hmm. by juiced, normally one means the the the, the property of the ball, which is which technically is called the coefficient of restitution, I simply like to call it the bounciness of the ball, uh, is elevated. So it's a, it's a quantity that's regulated by baseball, uh, and you, you don't want the ball to behave like a super ball, okay? So it's regulated, and all sorts of conspiracy theories come up. Okay, the Major League Baseball has secretly juice the ball, meaning a higher coefficient of restitution, more bouncy. And when it's more bouncy, the ball gets hit harder, higher exit velocity. Okay, so and when it gets hit harder, the ball travels further. It's just that simple. So let, let's just start with this. We're going to break it down. There's a whole bunch of hypotheses that we're going to talk about, but the very first one, the most obvious one, is the coefficient of restitution, or what we're calling the bounciness of a ball. And clearly, the more bouncy the ball the more home runs because the exit velocities should be higher. So let's ask, let's ask specifically what evidence is there for higher coefficient of restitution or bounciness? Well, you know, uh, despite what a lot of people have written, I find at, thus far no convincing evidence. Okay. Personally. That's interesting. Okay. Now, uh, that... that that will there, there will be some people hope maybe they're listening even uh, who will disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But so last year um, uh, during the 2016 season, uh, uh, MLB um, uh, essentially hired me as a consultant to look at all the test data. So the, the balls are tested extensively. There is a laboratory at University of Massachusetts at Lowell that several times a year throughout the season <clears throat> uh, does <clears throat> COR, coefficient restitution testing of the baseball. So they sent me all of that data. Um, I looked at it, I, you know, I did a very careful analysis of it, and my conclusion was that, this is again through the 2016 season, that there was absolutely nothing that I could find in the data that suggested the ball had been altered in any way. Was it a random it, sample of balls? I mean, what was the... That, as a statistician, that's my yeah, always first... It's, a, it's, 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 a, it's pretty much a random sample. Mm-hmm. Of course, that is, of course, one of the big questions. Whenever you're testing, you know, there are thousands of baseballs used in Major League Baseball in the course of a, of a season. And when you're testing, you're not testing every one of them. You know, you're, test, you're sampling. Right. And so then it becomes a sort of a... You guys talk about data science. It becomes a data science kind of thing. How large a sample do you need to get something, you know, before you can see a statistically significant change in some whatever property of the ball that you're trying to measure? So the counter um, uh, uh, data set that goes against what you observed, I, I believe it was Ben Lindbergh. You were listed as, as a, certainly a consultant, as a, uh, or at least someone that they consulted. They had done some, uh, uh, there was someone else, uh, uh, maybe it was Mitch Lichman, who had actually, yeah. they went and they, they did something interesting. They went on eBay, I think, and they went and got a number of balls that they knew were used at specific games. 
and then they then they had those balls tested for COR for coefficient of restitution bounciness, and they found a a a difference in bounciness between pre 2015 and post 2015 All Star break, and actually right. and their article didn't mention it, but they were wonderful enough to put out the data they put on GitHub. Good data science puts use GitHub to to, to uh, share their data, and I I was happy to do a statistical test, and there was a highly statistically significant difference in core with at least at least their data set, which was actually not true of some of the other t- uh, uh, characteristics that they measured, but there was a difference in core, um, and that and I remember remarking that their data seemed to be contradicting what you were saying with your with the MLB data. Um, did you? I'd like to hear your remarks on that. Uh, well, I also looked at I I, I had the, they send me the data mm-hmm. themselves, uh, and so I, I I actually looked at it, and uh, is it contradictory? Uh, I, I, look, it, there might be a small change, uh, I, I, and it might be a small, even statistically significant change, but once again, doing a similar test on a larger sample of balls at UMass Lowell did not show did it. Did not show it. So essentially, yeah. I think our p-values so were, so were small, but not ridiculous. Is it, simply, yeah. is it simply a sampling issue? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really know. But what I can say with confidence is, if there is a change, it's certainly not a big change. And not and, big enough to predict, to show the, to, uh, to describe the increase that we've seen. Okay, so yeah. that so that that handles our first one, the core. Now let's go to the second uh, possibility. I, I'm I'm going to try to see, one of the things that if you talk to Rick Peterson, who was our previous guest, he talked a lot about changing of approach. Uh, batters are are going for home runs more, different like angles, angles, right? And so, what do you think about that hypothesis? I think that's a very plausible hypothesis, and I'm actually currently, personally, myself. Uh, looking into whether I can see evidence in actual data that shows that batters have changed their approach. So the way, so by changing the approach, one, one way they could change the approach is simply by swinging harder. But I think that's not mostly what people are talking about. I think people are primarily talking about changing the, plane, the swing plane, the angle at which the ball is, at which the bat is moving <clears throat> as it strikes the ball, in order to get higher launch angle. So if you, if you hit the ball hard, <clears throat> but it you know, goes straight, straight out uh, at a very low launch angle, you may get on base, but you're not going to hit a home run. You know, to get a home run, you have to get that ball elevated to something. 28 so, degrees, you know, 25 degrees? 20, 25 to 35 degrees. Unless you're Mike Somewhere Stan. in that neighborhood. And <clears throat> so uh, the question is, uh, can one find evidence in the data <clears throat> that shows that that batters really are changing their approach? And the way you tell that is <clears throat> you look at how their exit speed depends on launch angle. Generally speaking, uh, when, the, uh, when a batter is elevating the swing uh, uh, so that you get a, a higher launch angle, you get your maximum exit speed at a higher launch angle. Mm. And so there might be evidence in the data for that. It's still in the early stages of being looked at. I, I have just 
sort of begun looking at that myself. So essentially what you're doing is you're looking at, in, given a batter, you're taking for a given batter all their bat speeds and all their launch angles, and you're essentially looking at the at what launch angle produces the highest velocity, and, and you can probably track that over time for given batters or for collections of batters, and you're looking to see a, a time trend in the maximum um, launch angle for each player, and that and that should be evidence of a, of a changing spring. So the idea being, if you have a level swing, your maximum velocities will be at lower angles, and if you have an uppercut, your maximums are going to be at higher angles, and that, that potentially would be an interesting line of research, and we'd be delighted to hear, to read about the results of it when, when you complete that. Let's take a look at, say, Aaron Judge. So if you look at him, is he an uppercutter? Is, he, is his highest velocities at, at the higher, higher angles? Uh, yeah, I think he's... Uh... I'm trying to remember now. Uh, I, I have looked at a handful of, of, of batters. He, he would be a hard one to be able to do any serious study on since he's a rookie. Right, I, of I course. I don't have any historical yeah. data. How about Mike Stanton? I, I mean, uh, but, uh, but, I mean there, there's a little bit of data from last year, but not very much. Uh, uh, yeah, so he, I think he, he, he's one of the ones who has uh, – who. Uh, has uh, an elevated launch angle, indicative of a swing plane that's somewhat steeper than than, than people typically used to use. There, uh, very interesting, Giancarlo Stanton, who's <laughs> who's hitting a lot of home runs this year. He actually seems to have a fairly low swing plane. Okay, the, but the thing is, he hits the ball so hard as a result of his swinging the bat so hard that 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 accounts for his his large number of home runs uh not so much the elevated uh, swing plane but simply because he he just hits the ball harder than anyone else does he he does he, he no questionly does does he use a does he have a higher bat speed or does he use a heavier bat what's his uh what's his what's I his key it's, I, I don't i don't know what uh, 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 the, uh, how, how heavy his bat is it it almost surely Therefore, probably is just simply higher bat speed. He's a strong guy, and he just swings hard. He's a, he and, looks like a know, football player. I mean, yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, exit exit velocity. You know, the speed of the ball coming off the bat is very highly dependent on how how fast you're swinging the bat. Right. So, Alan, one of the things about that hypothesis, although it's interesting and we look forward to he- hearing the results of studies that are done in this particular subject, is it doesn't necessarily make sense given the mid-2015 uptick. So if there were a change, it didn't kind of happen overnight like the way we seem to be seeing. So let's turn our our next question to the other possible explanations for the the ball uh, going out of the ball faster, which is which is uh, which is the there are two others that I know of, which is the coefficient of friction uh, on the ball itself, having to do with the seam and the size of the ball itself. So let why don't we start with the sort of the easier one, which is the size of the ball. So if the ball is slightly smaller, there'd be lower air resistance. Do you, is there any evidence that the ball is is a are significantly, not statistically, but actually significantly smaller than it was? Uh, yeah, let, let, let me not answer the question exactly that way. I would group the issue of, seam, of the seam height and the size of the ball together hmm. and simply talk about the air resistance on the ball as it travels through the air, or what, in the, in the common lingo of baseball, uh, the carry of the ball. So and I think I think Audie made that disti- off the bat at a, at a given exit velocity, a given launch angle, and ask how far does that ball carry, and then is there evidence 
that the ball carries better now than it did say in 2015 or 2014. Oh, okay, so you're you're trying you want you want to ask the question general about carrying and I was actually just trying to split it into two possibilities only only because you can kind of measure the circumference of a ball very very precisely and and that just seems to be something that should be easy to and, dismiss. And, and there's been sort of a lot well, re- re- no, no, recent I, I, articles. I, I agree with you, but let, let me just tell you about the, my, the the study that I have personally done which is I have looked uh, at the carry of a fly ball by directly looking at the Statcast data. Okay, and we want we I really actually want to hear about. I want to roll back. And you've done a few studies of this type, and there's one that I think is really really interesting that predates some of these things. We just talk about. I think you did a study inside a, a dome stadium with a with a um, not with an actual batted ball, but with a with essentially a, a gun, uh, an air gun that, that was tossing out balls and at essentially constant power, and yet the actual carrier of the ball was enormously different. And you looked at NCAA balls, you looked at professional balls, and made in minor league balls and. And there's a, a great graph that just shows how carry is so different depending on the ball type. Um, and, and, and it was enormous. Do you want to just uh, explain that to our listeners? Right. So this is an experiment that I and my, my colleagues from Washington State University uh, did at uh, Minute Maid Park in Houston uh, in January of, I think it was 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, we, uh, so we did exactly what you said. We used, uh, we had lots of redundant ways to measure things so that we were absolutely certain of what we were measuring. And we had uh, a dozen of the, of the formerly used raised team NCAA baseballs. We had a dozen minor league baseballs and two dozen major league baseballs. And it's remarkable <laughs> that when you launch the balls under identical conditions, same exit velocity, same launch angle, same spin rate, that the balls travel differently. And one of the things that seems to affect how the balls carry is, uh, so it all has to do with air resistance, mm-hmm. okay? And the air resistance on the ball depends on the size of the ball, the bigger the ball, the more air resistance. It depends on the seam height of the ball. Okay. Now, the dependence on the seam height of the ball is not something that had previously been studied very carefully before. So as a result of the measurements that we did, well, so let me just back up. What we found, which had already been studied before, was that the raised seam NCAA ball doesn't carry anywhere nearly as well as the, the flat seam baseballs, either major league or minor league. Can we put a, a, a foot, uh, the standard, the, what is the difference? Is it 20 feet, 30 feet, 10 yeah, feet? Uh, 20-ish feet or 20-ish so. 20-ish feet, and that's uh, a so huge amount. Would have traveled 380 feet for the major league ball, traveled 360. And that's a very so. substantial difference. In fact, that, that, that kind of experiment, uh, which had been done previously, led the NCAA to switch from a raised seam to a flat seam ball, but that's another story. No. Um, anyway, um, so a subsequent to that experiment, my Washington State colleagues, Lloyd Smith and company, uh, 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 did some careful measurements of the seam height. We had all the baseballs, and we tried to look at the correlation between the seam height and the, the carry distance, if you will. And we found, for sure, there was a relationship. But within the, within the Major League Baseballs that we looked at, there was some variation of seam height. And this is one of the things that Ben Lindbergh talked about in his, uh, in, uh, in his article. Right. 
there was variation in seam height, but it's it's not. The data are pretty ambiguous. It was. I, my yeah. analysis of Ben's data was that the, the difference there was a an average difference in average. Of course, any two listed number there'll be a difference in average, but it wasn't statistically significant. And they had it wasn't a huge sample, so it's hard to assess significance right. when it you wasn't only have a huge sample. Yeah. But but uh, I'm saying something even a little different. Not only wasn't there a large difference in seam height. Uh, the data that measured how the carry depends on seam height were also not so clear-cut that showed there was much of a difference. Hmm. There was a big difference going from the, <clears throat> the NCAA ball to the Major League ball, but within the sample of Major League balls, there really wasn't much of a difference that you could attribute to seam height. Okay, so that's interesting. So now let's bring us to two studies that I want to finish our, our, in our last 10 minutes to discussing. The first one is Rob Arthur's study. Uh, Rob did, a, did an interesting thing. He looked at the stat cast and he looked at the speed of the ball out of the hand, and then he compared it to the speed of the ball at the plate, and he, and he did something, and maybe you can tell us exactly what he did, uh, to look at, to, to turn the, the, D, D, the delta, the difference in speed, the loss of, you lose, when, when a ball is thrown, it, it moves through the air and it loses somewhat of its velocity, and he essentially tried to use that as a way to make an inference about the coefficient of friction or the, or the, or, or, of the ball. And then he tried to track that and compare that to home run rate. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that idea and and his result. Okay, so it's uh, coefficient of friction is not quite the right term. Uh, again, it's it's really the the drag, the drag, yeah, the air drag, mm-hmm. uh, and the drag coefficient. Uh, I think is probably what he was. Uh, I know that's what was he he was obtaining from the data. So I actually worked with him a little bit on this to show him how to obtain. The drag coefficient from a delta uh, from from the, the the yeah from the delta. Mm-hmm. So you know, as the when the when the pitcher releases the ball, it has a certain speed. By the time it gets the home plate, it has about ten percent less speed, right? Due to drag, more or less ten percent depends on, on the type of pitch. I would guess, yeah, right. Drag coefficient, the size of the ball, and things like that. Okay, so he uh, there's a voluminous amount of data uh, from on pitch baseballs. From Major League, but I mean, you know, every ball that's pitched is recorded, and you can find that drag coefficient. So what he did was he looked month by month over the past four or five years. I don't remember monthly averages of drag coefficients, uh, and he looked at how that correlated with home runs per fly ball, and that's what he showed in his article which was published in 538. Yes, yeah, so that's what he showed and I, I remember uh, this the data that he published was 2013 to 2017. He referenced data going back to 2008 um, but uh, he didn't actually publish that. Uh, the graph that he published okay. on was only 2013 to 2017. It was, it was uh, five years, and it was essentially 30 data points. The motivation for breaking it down by month, is that to try and somehow adjust for environmental factors? Or I what? think so, because remember, one of the complications, though, Alan, this is really important, and one of the reasons why you did your work in Minute Maid Park is atmospherics is a huge component of carry. Right, especially especially things like wind. I mean, to some extent, altitude temperature you know, nope. is very different than sea level, mm-hmm. but, but uh, temperature variation, pressure variation matters, but what really matters a lot if you're looking at carry mm-hmm. Is wind. I mean, a small amount of wind could have a big, a really big effect. So, um, uh, so he he, uh, you know, he, I have to tell you, Rob and I discussed this before he even published it, 
And he showed me an earlier version of what he was going to show. And uh, what finally got published was not the final version. And the plot, this, the one plot that he showed, showing the correlation, yep. uh, I found it not to be such a convincing plot. Well, I didn't find it convincing either, and uh, actually I'm using it. I mean, I found yeah. it, there was definitely a big uptick for 2017, but in the previous years at all, Nothing. Was sort of randomly scattered. And, mm-hmm. uh, I just thought he didn't make a good choice of, of uh, data to actually show. I know he's done much, much more than he showed uh, in that article, uh, and I thought, you know, that he should have he should have shown some of that. All right. So I found it. I agree with you. I found what he showed to be to be somewhat inconclusive, and uh, and therefore I didn't really know. So I'm going to turn our in our last uh, minutes. I'm going to turn our attention to the most recent work that you published or, or came up on on, on in, in the end of August. I think you presented it at uh, Saber Metrics Conference. Where where was it? Um, but yeah, the, it, the so-called Saber Seminar was in Boston. Yeah, Saber Seminar I in Boston. It there and then wrote an article for the Hardball Times. And it's a so it's a very interesting article. And essentially, what you did was look at at a, a, at batted balls only in one 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 enclosed ballpark. Was it which 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 park was it? Um, Tropicana, Tropicana Field, which is a hundred percent closed, completely climate controlled, constant temperature, constant pressure, no wind. Excellent. So all the thing if you if you're trying to study the carry of a ball. This uh, and you're trying to use actual uh, data from base from real games to do it. Mm-hmm. This is the place to do it. All right. So then, why don't you tell us what you what you discovered, and and I'll ask I'll ask some follow ups. Okay. So so I'll skip all the details because the details are not important. But basically, I I, I looked I I compared the. Pre All Star game, uh, so I, I, I'm looking at the carry of a fly ball. So the simplest way to think about it, even though this is not exactly what I did, but the simplest way to think about it is, you look at balls that are hit with identical initial conditions and ask how far they, how much further would they do they travel, and what I on on average, of course, there's a lot of scatter. The, mm-hmm. That Houston data showed there's a lot of scatter, but I'm only looking at average quantities. But I've got, you know, many hundreds of batted balls to look at. So, the, you know, you've got a lot of statistical significance there. Okay, and what I found was that, the, uh, that compared with the first half of 2015, baseballs in 2016 under identical conditions, so typical home run conditions, travel about five feet further. On average. In two th- in t- on average in 2016. Uh, and the same five feet in 2017, no difference between 2016 and 2017, but about a five-foot difference between uh, either 2016 to 2017 and the early half of 2015. And the latter half of 2015 was sort of intermediate between those two results. Right. So, so five feet is pretty significant. You know, roughly speaking, you know, you could go through a more statistical analysis, but roughly speaking, five feet is uh, is equivalent to about a one mile mile per hour difference in exit speed. But this is not a difference in exit speed; it's a difference in carry. But it leads to about a maybe a fifteen percent uh, increase in home runs. That's mm-hmm. a lot. Now that doesn't account so so that accounts for some of the increase between two thousand fifteen and two thousand sixteen. It accounts for nothing between 2016 and 2017 because they're mm-hmm. identical. Right. 
So essentially, the results of your study would say that Carrie was is the could be a primary explanation for the leap in 2015 midseason, but it won't explain the surge in 2017 over 2016. Right. Now, I wanted to ask that, a question. I, tells me. There's right. a couple things. One thing that I, I was looking at was, uh, I, I, you didn't publish it, but I was able to back in, infer it from the, from the data, the standard deviation. Um, so what you're essentially doing is just, um, is what you essentially, you look at the stat cast, and that'll tell you the exit velocity and the spin and the, and the launch angle. And then you use that to build a model for how far the ball went, should go. And then you compare it to what it actually goes. And, you, and, uh, and then you get a differential. So the, and that differential is in, the, is in the neighborhood of feet. And what, what you didn't report it, but it's about a 10-foot differential uh, standard deviation. So in other words, if you forecast its distance using the StatCast information, it tends to be about uh, plus or minus 10 feet from where it actually lands. Is that correct? I'm not following you there. All right, What's so... The, I don't know what you mean by the plus or minus 10 feet. So there in other is, words, if you use, if you use the... deviation on that 5-foot number, but it's nowhere near 10 feet. No, 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 no. The 5-foot is an average. That would, be a, that would be a standard error. I'm not, I'm not talking about a standard error. I'm talking about a standard deviation. So oh, in other, I see. A standard deviation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. There, there, so, there, uh, yes. So, the, if, you, if, you, uh, if you simply look at the distribution of fly ball distances... It looks, you know, roughly speaking, like a normal distribution with a standard deviation of something like 10 feet. Right. right. And so what that does, you know, you have hundreds of balls, so your, your estimate of the average is much, much smaller. Uh, right. and that, but right. that seemed to be fairly constant. So in other words, if you, if you thought that the balls were highly variable, some, some having low coefficient of drag coefficient, some higher, then you'd see much, you'd, and, and if you thought it was becoming less variable or more variable, and, and that kind of matters, right? So if you're going to, so I can have a same average, uh, and have really, and I can have more home runs because there are more balls that have very low drag coefficients, and those really go right. further. No, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I would say that we probably uh, th- th- this is still being investigated. Right. And so, th- you raise a very good point, th- th- and that point could apply not only to the drag coefficient, but it could apply to the coefficient of restitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it that it's uh, it could it could turn out that it's not the mean value that's changed, but simply the standard deviation of the distribution that has maybe gotten bigger. So you have more baseballs that are hit with you know harder because of the higher coefficient or restitution, or that are carrying further because of uh, that's right. Uh, the drag coefficient. So, yep. so, so, I mean, I was very, it was very compelling. Start. I actually thought that that was really puts the the nail in the coffin. The ball has changed because of this study, and you can see it very directly. I do encourage our, our, our listeners to go pull up the article. It was in the Hardball Times, and you can really see the 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 big jump between 2015 to 2016. There is an intermediate step in the second half of 2015, yeah. but you haven't seen it go up this year, which still leaves open questions. Um, anyway, Alan, it's been really a terrific. We, we have to we have to end our our, our interview as we finish the, the third quarter of our show. We're going to have to take a break. But it was really terrific to have you on our show. As always, extremely fascinating discussion, highly original, um, wonderful um, explanations for w- w- for some of the amazingly interesting observations that have happened in this year. And we encourage you to, to keep us posted with, with anything that you do into the future. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you guys. All right. Thank you, Alan. We're going to take another, uh, another break, and we'll be joining you in a few minutes. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We're in the midst of a pennant race. Well, the pennant race seems to be over. I want to thank Danielle Bruno on the soundboard. 
I feel like we're entering into the best sports month of the year. Do you agree? Do you think October? I think it is. I mean, you know, yeah. Baseball playoffs. Baseball playoffs. Football going strong. Hockey and basketball starting up. Starting up. Yeah. You know, basketball. I didn't put basketball on the agenda, but, you know, Carmelo... That's traded. A big, that's a big move. The Thunder looks huge. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no. It's true. It's true. I mean, I. I we're missing I Bradlow I today, so it's really hard to yeah. speak basketball without him. And I mean, you know, again, I. I guess I'm not the one to necessarily. I mean, I. I think I, I. I watch a lot of basketball during the season. It's hard for me to kind of, you know, I. I it's so ingrained at in me to just kind of assume. That's going to be Golden State against Cleveland in the final again. I don't know. Maybe not Cleveland. Maybe not Cleveland. But you know, th- the Thunder looking strong. Yep. Westbrook carried the team by himself, and yep. now he's got a, a he's got tremendous. He's got all star support staff. Yep. That's support right. staff. So that's interesting. We'll be looking at basketball, and which is, starts up when? When does the season actually begin? Oh, it's it's within the next uh, week. Or it's hard to believe. Didn't it seem that it just ended? Yeah. Uh, October seventeenth. Uh, Matt Datz, our producer, oh. on sharp on the button. He knows it all. He is just sharp. He's uh, he's rivaling Bradlow for the the tip of the tongue information. Although he has a computer in front of him, and that makes it good. Listen, Bradlow we're, we're, is a computer. <laughs> yes, Brad, he cheats. <laughs> he cheats. Right. He does cheat. He has. Uh, he's got that Google Glass thing going. Right. So he can, he can, you can see it in the eyes. Um, well, there's so much to talk about. We actually, in our first half hour, we, we actually tossed out a, a, a Twitter poll at, at Morton Moneyball, um, at uh, W Moneyball. And we asked the question, does, does Eli Manning deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? And it's going two to one against right now, maybe. Yeah. The, the, the poll is still open, so if you feel strongly against it. I mean, I it. feel strongly against I still think he'll get in, though. Yeah, you think he'll get in. I, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I would love for the Giants to go like 0-16 this year, and that really tarnish this guy's you know, already somewhat dubious legacy. But, yeah, I, don't, I, I think two Super Bowls. Two Super Bowls is a lot, yeah. and, and you know, if, if again, we'll, we'll channel our inner Bradlow. There's uh, always a tension between competing strongly year after year, and then of course winning, winning it all, and yep. winning it all twice. Yeah, in the NFL is big news. Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, one Super Bowl is is enough for is fans of most cities. Some fans are right. not content with. Just well, one. Philadelphia isn't hasn't won one. When was the last, has they ever won a Super Bowl? They have not won a Super Bowl, and they, they've they, won some championships pre Super Bowl. But. They have pre- championships pre Super Bowl. They've been in the Super Bowl uh, twice, yeah, but they have not closed the deal. Yeah, you enjoyed being at the game with that sixty-one oh, yard goodness, field goal. It was fantastic. Can you put that into context? I mean, tell us what it was like. Well, I mean, uh, obviously, people even casual. That's a very long field goal. It's, I think, the yeah. longest in Philadelphia, in Eagles history. And, it, you know, just it was... Just a yard was, or two away from the all-time It record. was a typical kind of Philadelphia game. They they looked pretty strong. I mean, again, the Giants were not looking particularly good. But then Philadelphia goes and starts blowing this lead that they'd built up. And, it, you know, now it looks like we're definitely destined for overtime. And they line up this field goal. And, I mean, of course, my seats weren't such that I was, like, right there, like, Staring at the field. Wait goal. a minute. As a Wharton Moneyball professor, you don't get fifty-yard oh, line seats. I had good seats. Oh, of course, it, was, you it did. wasn't the angle okay, the for angle wasn't evaluating. Great. So I, you know, I was at an angle. I was more midfield, so I was at an angle where I could evaluate the distance, mm-hmm. but not the not the know, accuracy, not the accuracy. Right. And so watching this thing go up, and then just, I mean, I had to. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's got the distance. And then watching the rest hands go up, and the entire stadium just went absolutely crazy. crazy. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You don't appreciate how into football this city. I mean, you, you see it everywhere, but it, being at a game like that, there is a lot of passion. 
There is. Yeah. Philadelphia is a very sp- passionate sports city. We can recall, you and I both uh, recall the celebrations when the Phillies won the World Series. Yeah, it was amazing. It and was, I mean, you know, if, 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 if the Eagles were to ever win the Super Bowl, and I don't think we're necessarily looking at that in the near future, but if they ever were to win the Super Bowl, this city would celebrate erupt. for years. You know, Massey Peabody has got them at about 4.5% probability. Wow. That's, that's not New England. That's not, not KC. No, well, no it's but not it's KC. Uh, they're about twenty percent <laughs> yeah, each. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's not zero. And, there's, and, and you know, again, <laughs> if you uh, you know, just kind of returning to the Giants as well as the Eagles, if you had to, you know, coming into the season, we definitely, I think, would have put the Giants as as much more likely playoff contender. But you know. As Eric and I discussed last week, being 0-3, that is, t- you that's know, a, it's, that's a, that's that's a, a real hole. I mean, so even if the Giants were to somehow turn it around, and there's no real evidence that they are about to turn it around, um, they've got a real hole to dig out of. And I, I, don't, I, I think probably they're now, you know, looking at a, a kind of a lost season. Which I which is, which is, which is wonderful, season, by the way. Which is wonderful. It's interesting because, you know, uh, is it really 0-3, really a lost season? No, it's probably not by this point, but you, you would, they would have to really improve very quickly. I mean, because, you know, they they have good teams in their division. They're, they're, two point, they're two games behind already in their division. So catching up for the division or even, you know, there's going to be a lot of wildcard competition in the NFC. You know, there, there is. It's... it's it's a real hole to dig out of. There's a lot of competition in the NFL. I mean, if you go from top, if you take the 15 teams that are better than average, yeah. the gap between them is not a touchdown. No, 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 no. There's, a, I mean, you know, the, to a certain extent, the, the NFL really has kind of achieved, I think, the parity they've been sort of looking for. It's just the Patriots, kind of as this exception, have, have I got to. Have they done it year Like, after if you somehow year. take so that out take of the, out the equation time component. somehow. You know, I mean, uh, it is hard to argue for parity when a, a, a single team has won like five Super Bowls in the last fifteen years. You just, you just but, that had to just roll out. I mean, can yeah. we have a Wharton Moneyball yeah. two-hour show starring Shane Jensen without mentioning five Super Bowls and how many World Series of the well, World Red doing, Sox won I'm, in the last I'm, couple? I'm, I'm doing you guys a favor because yeah. eventually, when I go on my next sabbatical, you can just replace me with a soundboard. <laughs> you can just have yeah. a couple yeah. quotes we'll just and quote, you'll come in you know, with like the sad trombone and then the Tom Brady reference, and, that's and, and right. you'll be. Done. I'm actually, you know, it's interesting because one of the big topics we had preseason was the estimates for Tom Brady and being 40 and the opening game. What did you think of the opening game? Oh, I, I well, wasn't I mean, here. He did, not, he, 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 did he look he, bad? Or no, he was underwhelming. To be, he, you know, he did not look good in the in the first game. The entire team did not look good in that first. And game. And the second game, uh, he scored 30 points and a half. That's good. That's good. And this last game, the he last scored game was for 370 some yards, five, five touchdowns. touchdowns. It does, you know. It, it, it doesn't it, get any better, it, it, right? I think I, it was, may have been his highest quarterback rating score, one of the t- highest in his career. Yeah, hey, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think it was pretty. He was pretty close to perfect that game, and yeah, no, I, I mean, we all sort of expect there to be some kind of degrade or drop off because it, ha- it right, it has to happen, right? Um, but it certainly does not seem to be happening yet, and and I mean it's 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 impressive to watch. I mean, I kind of you know I, one of my friends who is not really a, you know kind of into the AFC. He's an Eagles fan. He he mostly focuses on NFC. But you know we were kind of. While we were at the game, the sort of score went up, and there was like a little kind of stat line. He looked on his phone. There's a little stat line for what Brady had just done, and 
he just turned to me. He's like, well, he can't just keep doing this, right? I mean, it's it just this uncertainty that – Well, the, he can't keep doing this. But look what's happening in other sports. Yeah. Look at Roger Federer, yeah. Nadal. Um, and across the board, you're yeah. having people older than ever winning. Winning. I mean, even let's take one of my favorite sports, swimming. Mm-hmm. You have Michael Phelps into yeah. his 30s winning six gold medals. This would have been unheard of. So there's definitely been a, a shift and in the And people clock. keep projecting this tri- – I mean, I think to a certain extent because Peyton Manning was such a recent memory for people – people we kind of assume that when quarterbacks go they go quick we keep, I, i've heard this so many times over but the last not. couple of years and peyton manning did but i mean you know look at somebody like brett Favre. he did not go quick he no. was there was this long slow decline but one of the things that i wonder about sport about about aging stars particularly in the era of better training better nutrition better better longevity is the mental part of the game mm-hmm. is so important yep. here's a statistic here's a piece of information that neil payne mentioned and he's going to be on our show in a couple weeks um he said that sacks seem to be at least the data suggests more the responsibility of the quarterback than the offensive line. I thought that was interesting. And oh, uh, like it's more you know, about getting it, the it, ball. Uh, you know, and, and Manning is horrible. Interesting. He gets his butt Eli. knocked. Eli gets yeah. his butt knocked down, and and so it's tempting to say that's the line, but it, but the data seems to suggest that it's the that it's actually the quarterback, and that's an uh, and that's got to be a feature not just of skill of, mm-hmm. of physical skill, but also yeah. mental skill to learn how to see the yeah, field. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that one of the keys to Brady's success is he really doesn't get touched that often in a game. I mean, he does get hit. And I mean, obviously, we all watched that Super Bowl. He was getting pretty rocked in that game, for example. So it is, you are capable of getting to Tom Brady and and knocking him down and. He, he does seem to be able to survive that. But in general, over the course of a season, he is taking way less hits than, like, you know, the Eli Mannings of the world. And that, of course, leads to longevity yeah. and also allows him to you know, keep yeah. producing at this rate. So I will say, uh, for the record, I was one anticipating a drop-off in Tom Brady's performance mm. before the season. It still could it's happen. still an open question. But we have lots of open questions, including we would love to uh, get, our, get your take and my take on this week's matchups. Okay, so at the end of our two-hour show and during the football season, we um, look, we ask each of our uh, our hosts uh, to tell uh, tell us a little bit about each game. So Shane, you are in the hot seat this I week. I am. I am. Um, there's a Which, you know. I've got a few. I've got a few. I mean, this I hope is actually you got a few because I don't this, got any. This is a, a you know, last week was kind of there was not a lot of great games, great looking games on the slate. Some of them turned out to be really you know, fantastic. Okay. But um, but this week uh, there's a few that have really caught my eye. Raiders at Broncos. So what's the story be, with the Broncos? I thought well, they were. Yeah, we thought they looked great, and then they tripped. Same with the Raiders. So I mean, I mean, the overall kind of theme I think of these these first three weeks, and maybe I say this every season and just forget, but I really feel like I have very little idea this season who is actually good versus bad. I mean, you you have all these teams that come out and look great for a couple games, and then just stink. Like the, I mean, the Broncos getting beat by the Bills was a surprise. Yeah. You know, for example, after beating the Cowboys and, and, and looking dominant in, in that game. So I still think I would favor the Broncos. The Broncos are at home. So, I mean, I, I would sort of put those two teams at roughly even. Um, otherwise, um, maybe a slight edge to the Raiders, but the Broncos are at home. So I'm, I'm going to take the Broncos. You're taking, you're taking the Broncos. Yeah. What is the Vegas line on it's, that it, game? It's minus two and a half. So, they, you know, Vegas has the Raiders. 
essentially. So oh, my- sorry. Yeah. The, 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 sorry. The, Vegas agrees with me. They essentially have it as a wash except for home field. Right. Advantage. So just so our listeners, just to make this clear, the home field advantage tends to be estimated at between two and a half points to three points, depending yeah. on, on who's doing the estimating. And two and a half is what the Broncos are favored by. So they're basically saying on a neutral field, that should be That's right. Wash. So these are essentially two yeah. teams that are of equal equal power and yeah. they're up against each other. So they are an- essentially a wash. An- another, another battle of teams where I can't figure them out yet, but I think it'll be super interesting. And another fun divisional rivalry is Steelers at Ravens. So, okay. so, so in that case, they actually have the Steelers favored by three points, Vegas. But, I mean, who knows? So essentially they think, okay, so it's at the Ravens and the Ravens. So they basically think there's almost a touchdown gap between yeah. the two. And, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what that's based on. Both, uh, both of these uh, teams have looked very, you know, the Ravens looked very impressive in their first two games. Again, one of them against the Browns, so maybe that's not such a big deal. But then they get completely shellacked by Jacksonville. It was like 44-7 that game. And so now we're suddenly like, uh, what, are, what are the Ravens? You know, are they a good team? Are they not a good team? Steelers, same thing. Looked, you know, they came in to the season, you know, as one of the kind of teams that would challenge the Patriots, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get beat by the Chicago Bears. Unbelievable. The Chicago yeah. Bears. Are the they 1-2? and two? And they, were the Last yeah, year I mean, they were 2 and four. And the Chicago Bears are one of these teams where, like, these teams, this team's going to be awful. It's on our list of awful teams. So who knows? Um, so that that's the other game that I think is going to be actually really interesting. As far as the game on the opposite end that should be the biggest blowout um, for all you you know people with eliminator pools or whatever, the Colts are playing in Seattle yep. at the Seahawks. And again, the Seahawks have not looked – they're only one and two themselves. They have not looked overwhelmingly good, but the Colts look terrible this year. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. Who's, who's quarterbacking for them this year? Oh, I think it's uh, Jacoby Brissett. Who okay, uh, was the third, third, Well, he's the third stringer for New England last year. He won a game against the Texans back uh-huh. when Brady was suspended. So Andrew Luck is out for 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 the foreseeable. I mean, for the foreseeable he, I mean, I I don't know. It's it looks like it's going to be on the scale of at least six, eight, ten games. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, the Colts, and it turns out the Colts without. I mean, we were kind of wondering if the Colts with Andrew Luck would be any good. Certainly, the Colts without Andrew Luck are pretty pretty, pretty obviously bad. So I'm going to ask about Dallas. So interestingly yeah. enough, uh, Dallas. Uh, going back to last week's game, yeah. Dallas was the big favorite over Arizona mm-hmm. according to Vegas. And the reason why I mentioned that was we don't have Massey Cade in the studio today, but Massey Peabody had that had Arizona as their big pick of the week. Interesting. Um, in the sense that their Did they models, have actually Arizona favored or just not favored. They oh, had wow. Arizona favored, and they looking you're you're going to get yeah. points, and they were big, and so they're and mo- that was and a great game. It was a very highly competitive, very close game, and which is interesting because it's funny they had four big picks uh, last week. They won yeah. three of them, and the one that they, was their biggest pick, the one where the advantage was in, in my recollection, I've never seen a dis- yeah. a a a, a, uh, a differential that that imbalance between Massey Peabody system and the Vegas odds. It was a full touchdown differential, and, it, and of course it went in the uh, in in favor of the Dallas. They did cover the spread. That's not necessarily meaning anything. You know, these well, are a lot I'm, of variants in a game. Well, I'm glad you bring up the Cowboys though, because I do yep. think that that. I mean, I don't have the Massey Peabody numbers in front of me, but looking at some of these betting lines, I think that one is the one that is seemingly kind of uh, right. miscalibrated the most. Well, so, we actually so, got a, we got a Twitter question. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and the Twitter question says, "What do you think about having Dallas at minus seven over LA?" That's interesting because that means the Dallas is is uh, is favored over um, o- over LA by a full touchdown. Yep. 
Okay. And they are the home nope. team, so I Dallas guess that's sort of team, like, so you know, that would be four points on neutral field. And, and I think, again, if we were sort of making this betting line based on preseason expectations, that would be probably about right. But we've seen what out of the But we've seen three games now, and what, what we've seen is the Cowboys are certainly um, beatable. Denver mm-hmm. did a very good job of it, uh, you know, mostly based on defensive performance. Um, and the Rams are... Looking pretty good. I mean, A, they look offensively way better than we thought they would. Todd Gurley looks like he's, you know, the Todd Gurley of his rookie season. Mm-hmm. And and their defense actually looks pretty good. So, I mean, I I, I kind of also I, – I'm not sure I would put Dallas as seven-point favorites. I think I would probably still favor Dallas, but I think it might be closer to, you know, a four-point differential. Or something Which like is that. moving into the realm of toss up. Yep. And, yep, and, that's right. In NFL, that's really mm-hmm. what it is. I mean, there isn't I mean, look look at the Jets. So the Jets managed to win. They were a huge underdog. Unbelievable. Yeah. I thought uh, that that was a surprise. Definitely. Nope, Anytime the Jets win is a surprise. And now now the, the, the 49ers have yet to win. That's true. Though but, they were very uh, again really they played close. They played a very highly competitive and, and great to watch game. I, that Thursday night game, nobody I think went into that being like, Oh, Rams forty ers what a matchup. But that right. ended up being a great game. Yeah. Interesting. Now, no, it's funny because uh, one of the things about the Vegas line, and the Vegas line is always influenced by the public. Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not a, a, it's not a power ranking based. It, of course, it usually starts with that. I mean, usually the, the the Vegas people put out a line that's that's generally thought to be um, the right probabilistic model, but then it gets moved by the public. And so I wonder whether, I mean, what, and so one of the, I wonder whether the Cowboys get get that extra bump because yeah. they're such a national team and they get all that. People like to bet. On their side, and yeah, that, that and I, I mean, a gap. They're, they're you know, they, the Giants, the Patriots, these types of teams are are kind of perpetually in prime time, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I, I think that probably there's probably a lot more money flying around for those guys. And, right? and one of the things that that's, that researchers have been able to demonstrate conclusively, and this is always something that's surprising to people when I tell them that, is that it's it's widely believed that Vegas is is in the business of making money off of the the payout differential. Right. So essentially, when you, when a game is fair, you and you if you wager ten dollars and you win it, you 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 double your money. But if you lose it, you have to pay a ten percent fee. So it's what they call eleven yeah. to ten. So the there's a fee that's paid by the loser, and that goes to Vegas. Yeah. And their job is then to just sort of balance the money equally. They always take the fee and they always win money. But it turns out, if you actually look at the way the money divides, that the public tends to move in one direction and that Vegas looks at it and says, you know what? This is stupid and we're taking a position. Now, they still get their fee, so they have a a cushion that you as a better don't Mm -hmm. have. Yeah. Um, But they end up taking a position. And that's what. So when when the public wants something a lot, like like locally in Philadelphia, the public wants the Phillies to win. I mean, the Phillies, of course, but I mean, the the Eagles. But the line, the, the line, the betting line recognizes that and the Vegas takes the other side and yeah. that's why you could probably potentially see bigger gaps when these when these teams that are that are highly uh, liked or desired by the public what do you, what's going on with some of the uh, I, I remember I've been in Israel for the yeah. semester I've been not following so closely any of the any of the the big signings we remember we had a whole show that was at the at the NFL draft any of the recent players are they making impact Oh, uh, I, as as far as kind of you know, the, like free agent movement and stuff like that in the off season. So I mean, one, one or the or the, uh, the the recently signed players, the rookies. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, for as far as kind of free agent signings that have sort of started to have some impact. So we all expected Brandon Cooks to be kind of to be mm-hmm. a real star in New England, or I think I, I at least expected him uh, to be to be good. 
Um, and the first couple games were, you know, it was, it was he wasn't really as involved in the offense as people expected. But this last game against Houston, he went off, and was, he went it, off. It, and it looks like he's going to be a real weapon for Tom Brady. Um, and he, it makes you wonder, like, just how much even better, you know, because the Patriots have actually had uh, quite a few injuries. Their receiver cores essentially been ravaged by injuries. I mean, Edelman is gone for the season. The season? Oh, Gone wow. for the season. Uh, Gronkowski is, I mean, always. Day, day, I think. He's always in some perpetual state of injury. Um, and then Chris Hogan is, is, is a little bit hobbled. So, you know, having Brandon Cooks there as, as kind of, you know, hopefully continuing to be uninjured is, is a huge part of that offense. And he, I mean, you know, from a fantasy perspective, having, you know, a, a number one receiver for Tom Brady is clearly something Speaking you want to have Speaking of receiver, team. Larry Fitzgerald. Yes. How old is this guy? Oh my goodness, and he's so good. <laughs> I, I it was so it's it, I, I watched I watched that entire Arizona Cowboys game, and yeah, the catches he was pulling off were just unbelievable, uh, beautiful catches. You know, like like Julio Jones kind right. of style catches. How would you, we only have thirty seconds left, but how would you put him in the pantheon of receivers? Oh, I think uh, definitely top ten. I think he could actually end up being kind of in the top five in terms of receiving yards and stuff like that. I mean, you know, he's not going to got ways to go. But does he have I'm, the flashiness? I mean, who was he? He's, he's not a little Jerry bit. Rice, I mean, well, again, Arizona is a little yeah. bit less on the on the national radar so i think he he's had i think a, an understated career but he's been fantastic it's amazing because he's yeah. one of these older elder gentlemen yeah. who is just tearing it up elder statesman elder of football. statesman listen this brings us to the end of our two-hour wharton moneyball show i want to thank our producer matt Datz. great to be back danielle bruno on the sound engineer great to have you been with you for this one two-hour show i'll be back again in january signing off professor adi weiner of the wharton school shane jensen Enjoy your statistics. Enjoy your sports. We'll see you next week.